We've been talking, as you know, about the Psalms being different seasons in a person's life, seasons of maybe fear, loss, confusion, loneliness, anger, different places. And each place we are, uh, one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is they find us there and they give us language. Don't always know what to say. We just know what we feel. And when you read Psalms, it puts words to your emotions or your thoughts. Um, and uh, it, it, it almost always um, lets you kind of wallow in that place for a little bit. And then after you've had a few verses of that, the Psalm gets underneath you and starts to lift you slowly out of that. It, you'll notice if you look at Psalms, they go to some pretty dark places, but they always end, well, all but one, they end in this kind of a more buoyant mood. Nevertheless, I will, you know, that sense. And that's kind of the way the entire book moves as well. Uh, if, uh, if Psalms were, um, um, were, li uh, were like a fireworks show and every word of praise was like a firework sent into the air, then it would be like a typical firework show. Early in the book of Psalms, you see praise scattered here and there. But as you move to the end of the book of Psalms, you start hearing this theme of praise come back again and again and again. It's almost like the end of a firework show where they just light everything they've got <laughs> and send it up into the sky. And the way the Psalms end is just like praise, 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 just full. The sky is full of praise for God. In fact, of the 250 or so times in the entire book that the word or its equivalents mentioned, 50 of those occur in the last five chapters. 13 of them alone occur in Psalm 150, the very last chapter. 13 times he says, praise him with a Praise him, praise him. And he just mentions all the different instruments that would be used in worship, most of which we don't play anymore. But you just get this idea that everything that is in you is supposed to bring praise to God. So I, uh, like maybe some, some of you in uh, your adolescent years, struggled in my adolescent years, wondering how God could be as good as we think if he keeps insisting that we praise him. If a mortal did that, you'd consider them narcissistic. But when God says it, you say, well, he deserves it. But I used to wonder um, if he's got a call for it, doesn't he deserve it less? Five times in the book of Psalms alone, the psalmist negotiating for his life says, who can praise you from the grave? You start to wonder, is God in a position where he needs <laughs> the praise of somebody else? such that the only reason for keeping you alive is that he can't have more if he lets you die. In, in Psalm 22, he says that God inhabits the praise of his people. Literally, he's enthroned upon the praise. 
you almost get this picture of a God who, who sits in the midst of his people and he's just sort of embellishing it whenever the conversation is about him. And you start to wonder, is there something wrong with that? As I got older, I started to ask different questions and I started to notice that all of these ideas that I had about God and his praise were actually my own um, distorted ideas projected upon God. In other words, what if praise in the Psalms comes not as a command, it comes as an invitation or permission? What if praise from the psalmist remembers that you live in a secular society that has created a secular reason for every good thing that happens and the psalmist is simply giving you permission to give credit where credit is due? Just say, there are not that many layers between the almighty God and the raw hard facts of life. Give him thanks and praise. In other words, what if the person benefiting from praise is not so much God, but you. What if it does things to shape your personalities that make you better, not him better? What if praise opens up for you possibilities that would otherwise be shut down until you praise? And then all of a sudden, your, your horizons, not his, your horizons get bigger. <clears throat> What I'm saying in so many words is what if God has made us a species that thrives in a culture of praise? And the surest sign that we have been affected by the fall is that we've taken something like praise that was meant to be given and we've turned it inward upon ourselves. So we're always seeking it. We cannot give it. We get worried when other people get praise as if somehow it was taking away from ours. This is a sure sign that something is wrong with the way that we were made in the image of God. What I discovered in... Uh, reading through the Psalms is that praise is actually always part of the package, not the whole package. You remember Charles Dickens's the Tale of Two Cities. He starts out by saying it was the best of times. It was the, ah, oh, you guys, you're, yeah, you're, yeah, that's good. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. We lost some there was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. <laughs> he said, it was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had all things before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going straight to heaven. We were all going straight the other way. <laughs> And what he was talking about was two different cities, but he was talking about the same times. What he was saying, in fact, was the times that are the best of times are also the times that are the worst of times. 
It's not simply how you look at it. They're actually the same times. The times when you feel like you're the wisest, everything's great, are also the times when you're the fool and everything's not that great. The very moment that you're full of optimism, you've got this undertow of pessimism. You know, things could get worse. And these are happening at the same time. Well, in the 1940s, a fellow by the name of Klaus Westermann, he was a German pastor turned be a scholar, Old Testament at that. He was put inside of a Nazi concentration camp because he was supportive of the confessing movement. While he was inside the prison, Westermann began to read the Psalms slowly, carefully, and he discovered that he could put most of them into two categories. One he called Psalms of Praise, the other Psalms of Lament. In other words, there were Psalms that were for the best of times and Psalms that were for the worst of times. Psalms that were springs of hope and Psalms that were all about the winter of despair. And what he noticed is that these were not always just two separate Psalms. These were sometimes two separate states within the same Psalm. <laughs> and he began to discover this is in fact a picture of how we live. Every season of our lives is a season of hope and a season of despair slammed together. Best days ever, worst days ever. Same days. <laughs> I'm a genius. I'm a fool. <laughs> Same day. We live, he said, constantly in between these two extremes. Then he noticed something else. When he started to study Psalms that were heavy on praise, he discovered a pattern. They start by telling us what we should do. Praise the Lord, extol the Lord, sing praises to his name. And then every time it is immediately followed by the reason we should do that. So for instance, in Psalm 100, you'd read it like this. Shout, worship, and come before. You see them in bold? Shout, make noise, worship, and come before. Why should we do that? Well, because God is the one who made us, and we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. There's what you're supposed to do, and there's why you're supposed to do it. Now, the last two verses, it's the same pattern all over again. He'll start by saying, enter his gates, give thanks to the Lord, and praise his name. Why should we do that? Well, because he says, his love endures forever. That's that rich word in the Old Testament, chesed. It means, well, enduring love. In the Old Testament, whenever God saw someone who was the object of his favor, and he started moving towards them with favor, it was said to be love. When he appeared to Lot and his wife and said, get out of Sodom, I'm gonna rain down fire. Lot and his wife were granted a privilege the other villagers did not have. What they received was said to be chesed. When Joseph was thrown into prison, 
for a crime he did not commit. We are told again and again that even though he was in prison, God granted him chesed, favor. He wasn't going to pull him out. He was just going to favor him right there in that condition. So right there in the prison, he would have the best of times and the worst of times at the same time. So the psalmist says, the reason we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise is because we are the sheep of his pasture. We belong to him and his love endures forever. What does that fix? What it means, people, is that we never praise God in hopes of getting something from him. Praise is not buttering him up. We praise God because we already have it. We already have his enduring love. The praise that God's people bring to him every Sunday is had within the context of belonging. We are his sheep. We belong to him, and his love endures forever. And that's not changing every other day. So the beauty of this is that as the people of God, you can live in both extremes. You can be in seasons of lament where you are questioning God, why are you doing this? You wrote this, but that's not what happened. Why do you treat your friends like this? There's no answer. And you walk away from that time with God in your prayer and you're just frustrated. He doesn't fix anything. I was reading just this last month. I'm working through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10, listen to what he says. There's a great line. He says, Lord, there's no question about your righteousness, but I'd have a word with you about your justice. That's exactly what he said. I went, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> and for the next four or five verses, Jeremiah unloads on God by saying, why is it that good people suffer and sometimes die and evil people Thrive and listen to his language. You planted them there. You didn't only not stop them. You planted them so they would thrive. So I'm waiting for an answer, like this is class or something. And the Lord just says when he's done, Jeremiah, you race with men and they wear you out. How are you going to run with the horses? I said, what? He said, if you can't walk when the ground is level, how are you going to manage when the ground is uneven? I put it down at that point. What I want you to notice is Jeremiah and his God are having an argument and it's not resolved on that day. If you're waiting for the answer that suddenly balances this, that may take a while. 
The point is, as a people of God, we can have frank and hard conversations with God and still be under his enduring love. That never changes. So I can be cold one day and hot the next. And I can be just as vocal in both places, highly emotive in both places. Here, I'll just say it. I can contradict myself consistently under the enduring love of God. Gosh, that feels good. When I was a kid, um, um, I got a school bill from Marion College. It was back in the 1800s. And I remember I'd worked all summer to get to college and I didn't, I, I saved as much as I, I was, one job was laying sod. Then I was, um, I was a security guard in party stores. And then, uh, I worked in, uh, a home for the mentally ill worked, I say not lived, but I was trying to collect money in order to get through, uh, college. And then one day the bill came and they gave me the bill for the whole year. And it was $3,400. Holy cow. Like I said, it was 150 years ago. And I remember looking at that bill because I never got mail and I was sitting at the kitchen table. My mom was in the kitchen and when I opened the bill and it just kind of bluntly said, yeah, you owe us $3,400. I hadn't even been in school yet. I just erupted with songs of lament. I started to just say, how am I going to pay for this? I don't have this kind of money. I've been working my butt off. I can't save this kind of money. And my mom, like good Christianese, she said, don't worry, son. God will provide. When you're raised in a Christian home, that is not what you want to hear. I remember I threw the bill on the ground. I stood up from the table and I just erupted. I said, well, he better start providing now because I've been working my butt off and it's time he do something. And my mother went, shh like he was going to hear me or something. <laughs> you can't talk like that. This is God you're talking to. I was being groomed like some of you've been groomed to narrow the margins. One of my concerns about worship in the West and in church in particular is that we no longer experience either extreme. Our praise is little more than a song sung early in the service and our lament is little more than a confession. And we wonder why worship is boring. We've narrowed the margins. Anytime you are in a relationship that you cannot say bad news bluntly. There's something wrong with your relationship. And this goes for the way we raise our kids, I think. If your kids cannot raise questions to God about God, to whom should they direct their questions? 
Well, they should direct them to me. Yeah, but their beef is not with you. It's with him. If the God that we want them to serve can only hear good news, in other words, how great he is, what kind of God really are we asking them to serve? Now be careful. If we go too far, then our lament becomes an accusation. You don't want to go there. Like Job, you can complain for 38 chapters without accusing God. We should not threaten. We should not mock. But neither should we feel compelled to leave the land of lamenting until we are done. I hear this repeatedly. When tragedy strikes a family, immediately, people who mean well, they want to catch them and give them a couple minutes of sorrow and grief, and they want them to hurry the process. We do not realize sometimes that aborts their growth. It doesn't engender it. It's the fact that they can sit in the unconditional love of God, the enduring love of God, and they can be gut-level honest, knowing that a week from now they're going to contradict themselves. But they can say both things in the presence of God. That's sometimes the thing that pulls them out of it. So I encourage you, church, Whatever is happening to you that feels negative, when God feels unfair to you, or when he's calling for things you feel like you cannot do, I encourage you to say things from the gut that you feel. That's not a sign of unbelief. Unbelief is when you concoct an image of God in your mind that isn't real and talk to him. This one can hear you. Now listen closely, church. But we have got to become as eloquent in our praise as we are in our worship. We have got to become as good at praise as we are at lament. So many of us are eloquent in our laments and generic in our praise. Angry, we are profuse. Happy, can't find the words. We have got to become better at articulating praise. I was walking across the campus with an IWU administrator a couple years ago. It's not the one that you're thinking of, the other one. And as we were walking through the campus, person turned to me and he said, you know, I have a problem. He said, I can look in this campus, I can see a small piece of paper lying over there on the grass. It'll drive me crazy. Such that I cannot see any of the beauty that Jeannie Argot and her crew has made. Ah, the flowers, the grass, the trees, it is just 
bursting in the spring. All I can see is that paper. Who put that there? Whose job is to pick that up? You, do you, do you see, I'm t- I, it might be a job hazard, but I think if you work in higher education, your job is to assess. So you tend to assess everything and always look for ways to improve it. And if we're not careful, that will make us better at criticism than at praise. So we will have to learn how to be profuse with our praise. Here's the good news. You won't have to create your praise because it's already there. You already praise things that you deeply admire and you want other people to admire. So if you're a musician, you're already praising your favorite band. If you're a sports fan, you're already praising your favorite team. Unless you're the Lions, then you're lamenting. If, you're an, if you love movies, you're already praising the favorite actor. If you're in love, already praising the one that you love. No one's having to teach you this. The instinct to do it is already there. You've got the words. You just need to find them now for God. See, the problem is the instinct has been hijacked And there are things that are way more valuable than he is. But the moment you love something, you praise it. And you try to get other people to praise it. Come, 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 come. Listen to this song. Listen to this band. Oh, go, go see that movie. It's there. What I'm telling you is the context of praise is always enjoyment. Praise is not simply throwing up verbal accolades to someone you don't know. Praise comes naturally out of anything that you truly enjoy. I noticed in... uh, when we're on break in Michigan, we'll go out to the lake and watch the sunset over Lake Michigan. It is one of the, it's just gorgeous. The lake just opens its mouth and swallows it. It's, it's powerful. And then the next night will be another one. And then the next night, another one. And I noticed a pattern. Uh, the beach is full of people. They're throwing Frisbees, footballs, they're flying kites, they're cooking out. They're doing any number of things on the beach. But almost on cue, just a few minutes after nine o'clock, when the sun hits the top of that lake, it's like all activity stops. And people, as if on cue, turn and they face the lake. Nobody moves. It's like a worship service. It really is. And And we would stand back there and think, How is that you could not have an order of worship that good as occurs on that lake that night? When our own service starts, people ain't all looking forward, but they do it on cue. It's as if something inside of them just goes, wow. Have you had moments like that? Have you had them? Part of the way you find praise is you you deflect those moments onto God. 
And, and I think we'd be surprised how seldom Christians actually do this. When in conversations, Christians I'm talking about at work, about things that are going really well, never cease to amaze me how long they can talk about it without God ever coming up. It's as if the sun just said itself. But you know he said it. So you can stand behind and you can start to use words that tell him how amazing he is. One more thing. I think some of us are going to need to find different friends if we want to be better at praise. Because the ones we have are better at lament. When you gather with friends who are good at praise, you'll notice they do two things really well. One is they know how to say thank you quickly, immediately. And when they're thanking God, they're thanking him for a specific act that he just did recently. And so their thanksgiving is a response to what God has just done. It's the act. The other thing that they know how to do is they know how to praise God when there isn't anything to be thankful for. And when they do this, they do it not out of response. They do it out of discipline. Praise for them is a muscle. They got to work it. It's got to get stronger. It has to become more intuitive, more instinctual. So whether they're thankful or not, they have trained themselves to say things to God about his greatness.